Welcome back to Blank Monster. I am your host, Marie, here on the Blake Scenario channel. Blank Monster is a segment where I go through two or three monsters from the Monster Manual that I think are either overused and need new ideas or underused and deserve some recognition. We have been working our way through the 5th edition Monster Manual, and we are on to letter P slash Q this week because there is one monster under Q, so it kind of got tagged into a different letter. Our first monster this week is one that honestly looks absolutely terrifying. Um, I don't think D&D has a stat for a Thunderbird anywhere. This feels like it would probably be a good stand-in if you bump the size up a little bit. But we have the Periton. The Periton looks like a very, very large eagle with antlers and teeth because that's what you want to put on stuff. <laughs> It is a monstrosity, so it is not a natural animal. It is a carnivore in 5th edition. In older editions, it can be an omnivore, but it prefers to eat meat, specifically humanoids, usually specifically humans. When it kills its prey, it rips out the heart and then takes it back, back to the nest to be devoured. And there is a reason for that besides just being a monster. There's not much lore I could find on this. The 5th edition manual talks about a man whose infidelity caused his wife to cut out the heart of her rival, eat it, and then she was hanged for her crimes, and the birds that ate her body turned into a periton. Um, the other option is a human that was just transformed by a curse or an experiment. Really, both kind of go along with each other pretty well. Either way, peritons are beings of unnatural hunger, and their reproductive cycle actually depends upon eating a freshly killed humanoid's heart. A female can only be fertile if she has eaten the heart. Um, again, 5th edition is very scarce on details. According to the wiki, because Periton does not pop up in any of the books I have on hand, she is only fertile for 3 to 13 hours. So for a Periton, getting a fresh human heart is imperative to survival. But they are also relentless in attacking just because of their nature. They do have intelligence. Their intelligence is 9, which is just below average for humanoids. So they are as smart as humans, even if they can't speak, which means they will fight to the death. And if for some reason you manage to get them to leave, they will come after you and find an opportunity to attack. One fact that the 5e book skips over is that when a periton consumes a heart, the shadow changes for a brief time to reflect its true form. I cannot figure out why that's the case, because even looking at the wiki, the only thing I can figure out is their shadow either doesn't exist or reflects what they previously ate. So I'm not entirely sure what that means, but this is a creature that you can really play around with what the shadow looks like until it has eaten a human heart, or humanoid heart at least. They're typically found in the mountains, so mountain ranges, high caves, things like that. They can live in groups, but they're evil, so it's very difficult to. And, of course, they'll eat anything that wanders by. Any settlements that have a periton nest nearby definitely want to get rid of it because it's kind of a threat. They don't have a lot of specifics when attacking. They obviously can fly. They have a keen sight and smell. They are resistant to non-magical attacks, however. So they are very difficult in a straight fight because a sword isn't enough. So normal citizens can't just attack them. 
So a couple of options for these guys. The first is kind of the simpler one, seemingly, that a local town on a mountain range, because that's where most of these are going to be, has seen an increase in population from peritons. So there's been a nest or there's multiple nests in the area suddenly. And there's also an increase in periton-related deaths. But it doesn't make sense for the location. The victims are out in the middle of nowhere. They're too far from the mountains. They're not where they normally would be. So it doesn't make any sense. There are two reasons for this that you could kind of play around with depending upon your characters and your setting. It could be that there's a trader in the town that is getting revenge by luring people to these areas to become periton bait. The other option is you could have a pairing a periton. Yeah. That's hard to say multiple times. <laughs> you have a periton that is leading people through basically trinkets, through gold. I mean, these things don't have any reason to keep valuable items on hand. They just destroy and eat. But the things that they eat have things on them. So a fancy sword, a bag of gold, a diamond ring, all these things, they could just conveniently drop somewhere and wait for someone to come by. They have enough intelligence. The stat block doesn't specifically say they're an ambush predator, but you could easily set up one or two to have learned that ambushing works better, especially if they are desperately in need of getting a fresh heart for reproductive purposes. So that is very much an option you could use. The second scenario is you have your town folks who have seen a very strange shadow in windows. And what this is, um, again, there's no 100% specific lore on Periton reproductive cycles, so I'm kind of fudging it a little bit for this scenario. But you have a female Periton whose true shadow is visible, which is unusual, so no one really knows how to identify it. And she's looking for a nest and possible victims for her chicks once they hatch. So she's basically scouting out the area to see where do I want to end up landing in for a roost and what am I going to feed my babies once they come. So your party doesn't have to deal with the babies yet, but this is an option if you wanted your party to come across periton eggs, you could easily throw those out there and say, hey, here's a nest. They haven't hatched yet. Have fun. The third option is a little bit more darker. You have a town that is near a mountain pass. That's a natural passageway either through the mountains to another area, to another town maybe. And they maintain a periton nest within that passage by basically once a month, or however often you decide you want it to be, sending a sacrifice through to basically be consumed and killed by the peritons to keep them there. They are using the peritons as a natural guard. But to make sure they don't attack the town, they have to send people to them. The obvious answer, of course, is they could send unsuspecting victims through, such as adventurers. And the adventurers may not like that, which is going to get the town in trouble. I would make sure if you do this option, don't make it to where the town is inherently evil. Because it kind of falls flat after a while, make sure you're doing this by either good or misunderstood intentions. So that is the Periton. And really... The picture is, it's not awful, but if you saw this thing at night, you'd be running. Our next monster is the classic purple worm. Now, the purple worm, I feel like, is one of those monsters that everyone knows but no one ever uses because it's so big. It is a gargantuan monstrosity. It just eats and consumes and is attracted to noise. And if you've seen Dune, you know what you're doing. You set up a thumper and you just wait for it to show up and sandworms, right? 
So the purple worm is most commonly found in the Underdark, which is interesting because I've never really considered it as a subterranean creature, but that does make sense for its size. If it was on the surface, all of its tunnels would pretty much instantly collapse and wouldn't really be sustainable. Being in the Underdark, though, there's much more solid rock. There's more likelihood of finding nests of creatures that are actually going to be accessible. So it makes sense for it to be down there. It is also just a force of nature. It can't see, but it has blind sight, tremor sense, has no passive perception. <laughs> so it is just kind of feeling its way along looking for food. Loud noises do attract it, of course. So it has been known, according to the book, to interrupt underground battles and tear through subterranean cities. I love the idea of just like a mind flare and drow war that's been going on and all of a sudden a pur purple worm just pops out of nowhere and just devours the middle of the field and no one really knows what to do except keep fighting because the worm is now just part of the battlefield. Um, they do pop up on the surface, of course. This is where most people, I think, consider them, usually in rocky or mountainous land, so not the desert, unfortunately, although you could put them there. It is very rhythmic in how it attacks, so it kind of just goes back and forth a little bit. However, there is a benefit to them in that they eat the earth that they are tunneling through and then basically um, constantly excretes everything out the back end, of course. But anything that is not dissolvable by acid, like precious metals, gold, things of that nature, remain within its body. So if you could find one and kill it, there is a lot within it you can get. Another fun fact is they rarely return to their own tunnels. They are pretty much straight shot beings, and if you consider their size, turning around is kind of hard to do unless they know there's something beneficial behind them, such as a loud noise of a lot of people. So once a tunnel is formed, it's kind of just abandoned and becomes easy traffic for any other creatures in the Underdark. The other thing is they have more weapons, <laughs> because of course, they have a tail stinger. So just because it's leaving doesn't mean it's not going to stab you on its way out. This tail stinger, of course, is poisonous, so you really don't want to mess with either end of the purple war. So you might be wondering, of course, how do drought and mind flares avoid this thing because they live in cities underground? They do have wards in place. Um, I was able to find in the um, 4E book, they put up wards to basically block them from coming in. Um, they also mentioned in the 5E book as well that the Duragar also have things put in place to keep them from just attacking their city. So there are deterrents for them, but you're not going to find them just everywhere in the Underdark. So a couple of scenarios for this guy. The first is you have a mining town that has dried up or is drying up. And their thought is we'll attract a worm to get riches off of it. They either have heard or know that there is a lot of gold within the worm. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. You can decide. And they're trying to attract it. Your party could be either miners trying to help with this. Adventurers warning against this. Adventurers hired to help fight a purple worm. Maybe there are a lot of adventurers hired for this and you're just one of 50. Purple worms have not a lot of health, interestingly enough, in 5th edition, but they are a challenge level of 15. So they're pretty high level. So your party of three adventurers at first level is not going to want to be around them. But if enough people are trying to fight it and it has enough reason to stick around, there's a chance. The second scenario is kind of in two parts a little bit. 
the first part is just you have an underground city that's trying to expand. And rather than them tunneling, they're going to outsource this. So your party is sent to set up explosives and basically things that can bring in the worm to establish a new tunnel. The city itself is guarded, so it's not going to be an issue there. And your job is basically to set up a path for the worm to go through that they can tunnel into and become parts of the city. So an expansion project in some ways. You also could do the reverse of this. Rather than trying to tunnel around the city, you're trying to break down the wards to tunnel into a city. It could be possible you have a Durgar city that's trying to expand and they're trying to take out a drow city to kind of overtake them. Maybe you've got an actual war going on and this is just another attack at the other side. But if you can take down the ward, there's enough inherent noise in a city that's going to bring something in. You can cause a lot of devastation. So that's going to be the purple worm. He's kind of an odd one to pick, I know, because there doesn't feel like there's much with him. But I think if you put him in the Underdark, you can make him not necessarily a major threat, but an environmental effect. Especially if you think about your party traveling in the Underdark. They may get to areas and come across people that are civilized that say, hey, shut up, you're making too much noise. You know, there's a purple worm that likes to nest in this region. You don't want to attract it. And your party will just be on edge because they might be making too much noise at any point. So moving on to our last monster for this episode, we have the Quagoth? Quagoth? I'm going to say Quagoth just because I think I'll actually consistently say that. The Quagoth has two appearances depending upon which tradition you look at. The 5e looks like a, a hunched over deformed bear. It says it's supposed to be a bear, but it, it really doesn't look like one. It just looks like a monster. It's almost like a werewolf, but not quite wolf-like. Um, it is technically bipedal, but it walks around on its legs it's, or its arms because they're so long. It's got white fur and looks like a monster. In older editions, it looks like a very demented, overgrown Ewok. So if you've not seen that, I highly recommend looking it up because it's funny. But according to lore... The Quagoth were a race that lived on the surface eons ago, and whenever the elves came to the mortal plane, they nearly drove them to extinction until they went underground. While they were there, they had to adapt very quickly, getting dark vision, having to lose color in their fur that went white, and food is very scarce. So while scrounging for food, they also turned to cannibalism in order to survive. At that point, any culture they had was lost. They are technically intelligent. They are just very low intelligence. So they're very, very basic tribal nature that they deal with. While they are down in the Underdark, of course, they run to the drow. And the drow are like, hey, you don't like the elves. We don't like the elves. We can use you. And they decided to basically kind of adopt them into their culture as basically a free army. Now, the Quagoths in 5e, again, it's a very simple description. But if you look at past editions, they are described as being both enslaved and wild so enslaved quagoth serve the drow as basically a fighting force it wears down their spirit so they will basically fight to death in a battle which fits with the normal quagoth spirit in general they're very vicious and in fact when their abilities is when they get down to tear fewer hit points they can do additional damage and they have advantage on attacks so that if they get backed into a corner or dying they're going to take anyone down they can with them which the drow really like and the drow, of course, have started breeding them for strength and loyalty so they can basically have, again, a free army 
and that even extends to raiding the surface world to make sure they maintain that hatred of elves. Now, the Quagos that are free, or free roaming, so to speak, for, live in a tribal society, and they have a shaman called a Thanat. Now, Thanats are Quagos who have absorbed psionic energy. If you remember in our last episode, the oozes, we had a sentient gray ooze that absorbed this energy as well. So these Quagos become the tribe shaman. They have a little bit extra abilities. They have some spell casting, but not much. And they're in charge of basically maintaining the lore of the tribe, of maintaining, yes, we are superior to others. We're going to fight to the death. But if this um, Thanat ever fails this tribe, it is eaten in a cannibalistic ritual and it is hoped that its powers will pass on to a more qualified Quagos. Yeah, not a job you really want. <laughs> So a couple of ideas for these guys, because they are very bestial in nature, but they are not just monsters. The first is you have an elven town on the surface that is being attacked by what they describe as white bears. What this is, is this is a drow that is bringing young Quagoth up in a raid as both training exercise and instilling hatred for the surface world. So your party has a couple of options here. They can either destroy the raiding group, including the drow, they can just hold them off until they go back to below because the drow are not trying to fight to death. This is just a training exercise. So there's no reason to waste resources and possibly time invested into training on a losing battle. You'd also try to free the Quagos, which doesn't really get you a whole lot. They'll probably want to go back underground, but at least you freed them if your party wants to try that. And there's a couple of options there. Your party can also just decide to block up the entrance and see if anything happens that way. The second option is your party is underground, and they're being sent by probably a drow, although it could be anyone. They're being sent to overthrow the shaman of a local tribe. This would be a wild tribe that is not under anyone's control, but it has become powerful enough to be a threat to a nearby city or town. Again, all in the Underdark. So your party has to figure out a way to either kill the shaman, make the shaman fail at something so it is killed, or just disrupt the tribe in another way. So they can kind of approach it how they want to. They have a very simple objective. But the shaman is going to be the main target for their, for their actions. The last one actually pits the party into a fight as Quagos themselves. Again, they have intelligence to be sentient. They are just barbaric, for lack of a better word. So your group is from a civilized tribe. Within the past editions, you had the idea of beast follower and magic follower tribes. So beast follower would be ones that are very animalistic. They've given into that nature. They don't want anything to do with training, knowledge, things like that. Magic followers are tribes that are trying to grow what they have. So they use tools. They use tactics. Some of them might even be ex-slaves that know how to use an axe, more sophisticated weapons. So it's the idea of civilized versus uncivilized. You're from a civilized tribe, and your tribe is being encroached upon or threatened by a uncivilized tribe. So you've been sent to attack. At this point, your party is now all playing as Quagos. You can decide if you want to play any specific classes or just give them the bestial stats and see what happens. You could also have other, um, other races thrown in there if you wanted to. I would maybe recommend a drow if you really wanted to do that. But honestly, I think just having Quagoths as themselves going in would be really good. 
So that is going to be our three monsters this week. We have the Perryton's, sorry, Perryton's. I keep trying to say it's Peritoplatypus for some reason. <laughs> Perryton's, Purple Worms, and Quagoth. Which somehow we almost ended up in the Underdark completely this episode, but two out of three ain't bad. We will end our episode there. Let me know if you play as a Quagoth, what you think your class would be. I'm leaning towards Ranger and Barbarian, but I think the argument could be made for a Cleric if you want to be a Shaman. And we, again, are coming up on the last few letters. So if you've got any monsters you want me to talk about, or if there's any that I did not talk about in past episodes, let me know and I might do a special episode for those. And until then, I will see you next time. Hello! Bob Spuds here on the scene once again reporting for Potato Candy Network. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing on your podcasting app of choice. If you have a scenario prompt you want us to use, send it to us on social networking with Instagram and Facebook at Potato Candy Network. And if you really liked us, consider supporting us on Patreon for bonus content monthly, such as behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, inspirations, and future episode previews. Check out our brother show, Dreadful Tales, for some taut tension full truly terrifying tales of terror. <laughs> Got that on the first try, you know. And finally, please leave us a review, as it helps your recommendations and helps others find the hard work we do here at Potato Candy Network. Oh, and friendly reminder, if someone asks you if you're a god, don't think of marshmallows. <laughs> Nobody likes that guy.